Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to our worship service. If you're still coming in, find a seat. If you're online, we're glad to have you with us this morning. We're going to worship the Lord together. The first song we're going to do today is an old one, so most of you will know it. Glorify Thy Name, it's called. And I just, I'm wondering if I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but to the ancients, the word glorify, glory meant high status. And a name was considered to be something that represented the character of a person or a being. So when we, when we ask God to glorify his name, we're asking him to show us his high status. And it's also a call for us to do that, to acknowledge to him and to each other that we are worshiping a God who is the highest above anything else that we know. So let's stand together and let's worship the Lord through this, for these next two songs. Before us, 
really enjoy those two songs that we just sang because they're a reminder for us, right? That what we are gathered here for this morning is not just to sing songs, not just to enjoy one another's fellowship, not just to hear a speech from me. But we gather here together to, to worship and glorify God who's holy forever, who's worthy of all our worship. That's why we're gathered. That's what we're here to do, to bring Him honor and glory and praise. We're glad that you're here with us this morning to do that. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you are here with us this morning as we come together to worship our God. If you are new or visiting, there's a a Connect card on the seat in front of you. We would invite you to fill that out with any information you would like the church to have about you. We'd love to be in contact with you and connect you with the church and learn more about you and have you learn more about us. If you do fill that out, that can be placed on the wooden boxes that are on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those wooden boxes are also where tithes and offerings can, can be placed on your way out this morning. So just a couple of announcements to bring to your attention. One is that following the Sunday school hour this morning, about shortly after 11.30, we will have our congregational quarterly meeting here in this room as we update you about things that are happening in the church. We hope that meeting will be informative for you and just encouraging for you to hear all the things that are happening in the church. As part of that meeting, we'll also vote on uh, just a change and an amendment to our budget. We'd encourage you to be here for that to be able to cast your vote for that. A couple other announcements on the back of your bulletin that I direct your attention to to read when you're able. But as we, we continue in our time of worship, it's a reminder that as a church, our desire right, is to, to reach people with the gospel and to grow to be like Christ and to serve others. Right? And in, in that endeavor to reach people with the gospel, a couple weeks ago, Sue Beth Gustafson went to Cuba um, and she's here this morning now to, to give us an update about what all took place down there and just tell us about that experience. Thank you, Tim. Um, 45 minutes south of Florida, Miami, um, is a little nation of Cuba. It's warm and sunny and rainy sometimes. And um, my brother has been going there for the last 24 five years, and he's been telling me stories about what God is doing in Cuba. The church is alive and growing. And um, so two weeks ago, I got to go with him to this um, island nation. Um, The purpose of our trip was to support and encourage pastors and missionaries or evangelists. Uh, They're indigenous missionaries. Um, in in this country, we we went to s- encourage them spiritually, and you can see us blessing the pastors there. Imagine in this country, uh, your toilet seat breaks. There's no Menards. There's no money for a toilet seat. There's no toilet seats anywhere. Um, remember the COVID shortage? <laughs> we took our own toilet paper. <laughs> Um, there are no cars to buy. There, uh, we bought 59 bikes, which were all the bikes in the country, and gave them to 59 pastors who were thrilled. One gentleman said, somebody stole my bike. They travel 10, 
12 miles, 8 miles by foot. And someone had stolen his bike. And um, he said, and I asked the Lord, can I please have a bike? I need a bike. I would really like a bike. He went to a store where there was a bike, actually, and he put his hands on the bike and said, God, this is the bike, the kind of bike I want. And sure enough, we went to his uh, area church and were able to give him a bike. He was overjoyed, overjoyed, encouraged. Um, we traveled the lengths of the country from the east to the west. Um, we got to see the country. We got to see the cities. We went to 16 churches. Um, we met over 500 pastors and lay missionaries. We put our hands over each one of them and prayed for them, our team of 11 people prayed for each one of the, um, well, we would have one at a time come up to us and we would pray for them. Um, we would give them two months worth salary, $40. We um, gave, some pastors got cell phones, some pastors got uh, computers. Uh, we took 22 suitcases of personal essentials, underwear, toothpaste, toothbrushes, watches, um, aspirin, and many of you gave um, clothes and necessities and money for us to take to these people. When you go to the hospital there, they have fantastic doctors, but you have to bring your own sheets, you have to bring your own food, you have to bring your own medicine. Where do you get that? So when we take medicines down there, they, they go into the church dispensary, and then people can come to the church and get whatever little things we have there for them. We gave 300 uh, solar lanterns out. The electricity goes out any old time, up to 10 hours. So people there really know what it means when you say Jesus is the light. They know what that means. Um, <clears throat> The church is alive and growing there because of the sacrificial and dedicated, passionate, uh, bold, faithful uh, pastors and evangelists there. And it was our privilege to go and encourage them. Um, and thank you for your support and your, your gifts to me to take to them um, and keep them in your prayers. They know what they're doing. They know what their mission is. They're not distracted by material things or entertainment. They know um, that their job is to, to present Jesus to their neighbors. That's the only hope that we have at the, any time in our lives. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sue Beth. And as we continue this morning, this is our this Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, and so to lead us in a time of remembering and reflecting on what that means. We have a, a group here to lead us in that this morning.
Advent is a chance to remember the hope God offers to our lost and dying world and that he's given us through Jesus. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Paul, the writer of Galatians, articulates so perfectly the great hope we celebrate at Christmas. With, without God's intervention, we were all slaves, bound up by our sin nature and hopelessly headed to the grave. Because of God's great love for us, he came down and rescued humanity by sending his son as a sacrifice for As we light this candle, let us stir up our hearts a, a sense of anticipation. Over this Advent season, we pray that hope would rise up in our spirits in a tangible and life-giving way. Father, let your hope arise in our hearts. Lift up our eyes to see that you alone are where our hope comes from. Help us to shake off the anxiety, discouragement, and distractions that have filled this year. May we pause to remember that we have hope in you. You know the end of our stories, and we give thanks because you have promised that it will be a victorious ending. Give us the grace we need to wrap up this year joyfully. Renew our sense of holy anticipation. Let us be those who are waiting eagerly for Jesus to come again. More than anything, we ask that you be glorified in this season of expectation. So let's say you want to describe the feeling of anticipating a future that's better than the present. You might be giddy or excited or maybe unsure, but most of us know that experience. We call it hope. It's a state of anticipation, and it's crucial for healthy human existence. And it's a really important concept in the Bible. In fact, there are many words for hope in the ancient languages of the Bible, and they're all fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words translated as hope. The first is yachal, which means simply to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the floodwaters recede, Noah had to yachal for weeks. 
The other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release. That's kava, the feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavas for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kava and yachal for morning dew to give moisture to the land. So in Biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, at this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel, so I will kava for him. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find the same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms, where these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. Like in Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kava for the Lord, let Israel yachal for the Lord, because he's loyal and will redeem Israel from its sin. Biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see, in any situation, how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better but you choose hope anyway. Like the prophet Hosea, he lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires and he chose hope when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope, like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus and he could do so again. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says, And now, O Lord, what else can I kava for? You are my yachal. In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated the similar habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope, and they used the Greek word elpis to describe this anticipation. The Apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope, that people can be reborn, to become new and different kinds of humans. More than once, the Apostle Paul says the good news about Jesus announces the elpis of glory. In both cases, this elpis is based on a person, the risen Jesus, who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humans. The apostles believed that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is. But biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. That's what the biblical words for hope are all about. This is Advent. This is the Hope Sunday. So please stand and let's celebrate the hope that we have in Christ.
merit that you've done all that was required and you did it on our behalf but because of our faith in you we 
to be treated by the Father as if we lived your sinless life and look forward to eternal life with you. We thank you that you came. And as we enter this season of Advent, let us remember how important, how significant it is that you came to us to live among us, to be like us in every way, yet without sin. Father, we thank you for your grace in sending your Son. And we did not deserve it. That we could have hope of being made right with you. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Children in 4K through 2nd grade at this time have the option of heading downstairs to go to Children's Church. The, uh, the Swiss philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau is famous for a variety of contributions he made to, to modern political thought. His, his works and writings were a key part of the Enlightenment, and in particular his political writings were, were very influential in the French Revolution. Despite all those kind of big picture things, his favorite work he ever did, and what he considered his most important work, was a little book published in 1792 called Emile, or On Education. And this book was a treatise on the education of children. And it presented some pretty revolutionary ideas for its day. And eventually this book would become the, the basis for a new system of education in France during the French Revolution. Education at that time was, was very rigid and, and strict and authoritarian. But Rousseau believed that the children should be free to explore the world around them and, and learn through play. And probably the most revolutionary idea in, in this book was that Rousseau thought that fathers should be actively involved in raising and educating their own children. This wasn't a common thought during that time, but Rousseau wrote... He has no right to be a father if he cannot fulfill a father's duties. Poverty, pressure of business, mistaken social prejudices, none of these can excuse a man from his duty, which is to support and educate his own children. He was big on father being involved in their children's lives and education. And so Rousseau, who had, had five children himself, and so quotes like this would lead you to think that Rousseau must have been a great father, that, he must have had, that his children must have had a great education, a great upbringing. But in fact, Rousseau left all five of his children with a Paris orphanage, or what was called a foundlings hospital back then. And he had this to say about his children. Five children were born of our liaison and all were placed in the foundlings hospital, and with so little thought of the possibility of their identification that I did not even keep a record of their dates of birth or of their gender. But this man who wrote so eloquently about a father's duty to support and educate his own children, then gave his own children to an orphanage without even bothering to remember their birth dates or their genders. And it's interesting that 
this all came to light because Rousseau's kind of philosophical rival and nemesis, the philosopher Voltaire, published an open letter under a pseudonym where he exposed all of Rousseau's deeds. And in that letter, Voltaire claimed that Rousseau left his children at the door of the orphanage. And Rousseau, in seeking to defend himself, responded by assuring people that he did not leave them at the door, but that he walked them all the way in. Which it kind of made me think of, of this meme. Right? He, he entirely missed the point. Right? And in his autobiography, Rousseau, Rousseau explained why he gave his children away this way. He said, I tremble at the thought of entreating them to a family ill brought up to be still worse educated. The risk of the education of the foundling hospital was much less. Right? So basically he's saying, right, the orphanage could do a better job educating them than I could. Which first, if you know anything about orphanages in 18th century Europe, there's no way that was true. But even if it were, right, just the idea that this, this paragon of educational thought, this proponent of fatherly involvement, giving his children to an orphanage because he didn't think he could educate them well enough. It's sheer hypocrisy. If hypocrisy is if claiming to have moral standards or beliefs that one's behavior does not live up to, then there are few more clear examples than a man who preaches the importance of a fathered role while also giving his own children away to an orphanage because he doesn't want to educate them. It's hypocrisy at its worst. And while Rousseau is a particularly vile and heartbreaking example, especially for those of us who love kids, the reality is that we're all hypocrites in one way or another. All of us have beliefs and moral standards that we impose on others that we don't fully live up to ourselves. In Galatians chapter 2, we see that true even of, of Peter, one of Jesus' apostles. And in the passage, Peter acts hypocritically. But what we'll see in the passage is that another apostle, the apostle Paul, confronts Peter. And as he confronts Peter, we see that, that Jesus subverts our self-righteous hypocrisy. That, that the gospel and all that Jesus did takes the legs out of all the reasons that we might have for, for hypocrisy. As we've already celebrated, like this morning, it's the first Sunday of Advent. And, and during this Advent season, we're just going to continue through our series in the book of, of Galatians, which may not seem like a very typical or traditional approach to Advent. But what I hope we see in the next several weeks as we walk through this Advent season is that Galatians points us to why Jesus' coming was such a big deal. I hope we see in these next few weeks like why the Jewish people are so eagerly awaiting a Messiah. So for example, well, the last sentence in our passage this morning is this. If keeping the law can make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Advent and Christmas and the arrival of God's Son are a huge deal precisely because keeping the law cannot make us right with God. It's only with the arrival of Jesus that we could, could have hope. That there's a chance that we could be made right with God. And Galatians 2 and Galatians 3, which we'll look at over the next couple of weeks, are all about how the old system, 
of keeping the law was never going to be sufficient to make us right with God. And then Paul kind of brings his line of thought to a culmination in Galatians chapter 4. And that's where we'll land on Christmas Eve morning. And in Galatians 4, Paul says, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our heart, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. That's ultimately what Advent is about. God sending his son to buy our freedom from the law, to turn us from slaves to the law into children of God and heir to the kingdom of heaven. So that's where we're headed. We begin our, our Advent season by looking at Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21 together this morning. This is Paul writing, and he says this. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When we first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of the criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like these Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner. If I rebuild the old system of law, I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law can make us right with God, there was no need for Christ to die. So this passage right, is all about Paul confronting Peter over his hypocrisy. And specifically, Peter's hypocrisy involved the fact that he, he believed, his moral code told him that it was right and it was good for him to eat with Gentiles, even Gentiles who were uncircumcised. But then some Jewish men showed up, and suddenly he stopped eating with these Gentiles. 
How many felt pressure to stop eating until Jesus stopped? And traditionally, Jewish people avoided eating with Gentiles for two reasons. First, they considered the foods the Gentiles ate kind of ceremonially unclean. It was against the Old Testament law to eat many of the foods that the Gentiles ate. But secondly, and probably more significantly, they didn't eat with Gentiles because they considered Gentiles themselves unclean. They viewed Gentiles as outcasts and inferior. The Jews believed that through their strict adherence to the Old Testament law, that they were morally superior to the Gentiles. And therefore, it was kind of beneath them to spend time with the, with the Gentiles in an environment as relationally significant as a meal. They could have cordial, business-like, distant relationships with Gentiles. They could keep them at arm's length, but to have any kind of close, intimate relationship, no way. So this was, in short, like a form of, of racism and legalism that kept Jews relationally distant from Gentiles. But in Acts chapter 10 and 11, Peter has this, this vision that radically changes how he views Gentiles. We don't have time to look at the whole thing this morning, but it's worth your time to look at and read Acts chapter 10 and 11 if you get a chance. And basically what happens there is that God orchestrates this series of events to make clear to Peter and then in, in turn the church that Gentiles are worthy of full inclusion in the church. And ultimately, that story concludes with Peter saying in Acts eleven seventeen. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? Later in Galatians, Paul makes the same point when he says, And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Because Peter has this experience in Acts chapter 10 and 11, there's no doubt in Peter's mind that it is good and right for him to relate and eat with Gentiles. He's had this experience where he realizes that they're all one in Jesus. That's why he was eating with them initially. He knew it was right and good. So then, his sudden refusal to eat with Gentiles is, is contradictory to his own beliefs. In other words, his refusal to eat with Gentiles is hypocrisy. And Paul goes on to tell us what motivated this hypocrisy in, in verse 12. Paul says, Peter was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles, not because he had a sudden conflict of conscience about whether it was right or not. He stopped eating with the Gentiles because he was afraid of criticism from people who were insisting that Gentile believers should be required to keep the Old Testament Jewish laws. Peter was afraid of criticism from those who wanted to maintain the legalism of the old Jewish system. Ultimately, Peter's hypocrisy was, was motivated by a fear of man. He was driven to hypocritical behavior because he was more worried about the opinion of others than he was about the opinion of God. And as a result, he was not just doing damage to himself, but to others as well. Verse 13 says, 
had to adopt other Jewish believers, follow Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas would let astray by their hypocrisy. The Peter hypocrisy was leading others into hypocrisy as well, including Barnabas. And Barnabas was a, a traveling companion of Paul and, and the Gentile Titus. As a traveling companion, Barnabas sh- certainly shared many, many, many meals with Titus during their travels. But suddenly, due to Peter's example, Barnabas stopped eating with Gentiles as well. Peter's hypocrisy is causing these deep rifts in the church, and so Paul feels the need to respond. And Paul's primary issue as he responds to Peter's behavior is not simply that Peter is being racist or inhospitable or legalistic, though he was certainly being those things. Paul's primary criticism in verse 14 is that Peter was not following the truth of the gospel message. And that word following there is a Greek compound word, orthopedeo. And that first part, ortho, means means straight. So think orthodontist, they make your teeth straight, ortho. The second part is pedeo, which means foot. Think of podiatrist, a foot doctor. Or more broadly, it can just mean to walk. So orthopedeo means literally straight walking. So Paul's criticism of Peter was was that he was not straight walking the gospel. That he was not bringing all of his behaviors and all his life in line with the gospel message. And because Paul understands that Peter's problem is not just a behavioral issue, but a gospel issue that then guides how he responds to Peter. Look again at how Paul responds, starting in verse 14. He responds with the gospel. Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. That's a paraphrase. Paul is saying to Peter, look, because of the gospel, because of Jesus, you, Peter, a Jew by birth, have have discarded the Jewish laws. You've gotten rid of that old legalism. So why are you trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You've applied the gospel to your own life and your own behavior by no longer observing the Jewish laws. So why won't you apply the gospel to the life of others as well? Paul is saying, Peter, you know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. That's the heart of the gospel. Obeying the law is not what earns someone favor with God. Only faith in Jesus does that. So why are you trying to make these Gentiles earn favor with you by obeying the law? Paul is rooting his response in the gospel, not in moralism, not in behavioral codes of conduct, but in the gospel itself. Tim Keller sums it up this way. 
Paul's approach makes all the difference. Paul did not simply say, you're breaking the rules, even though Peter was. But you've forgotten the gospel, your own gracious welcome in Christ. Paul did not focus so much on the sinful behavior as on the sinful attitude of self-righteousness that lay beneath it. Any hope we have of rooting out sin, any hope we have of genuinely encouraging others to change must be rooted in the power of the gospel. Real change comes from focusing on our sinful attitudes, not primarily our sinful behaviors. And Paul himself is so committed to the centrality of the gospel as the means of changing our behavior that he goes on to reiterate and expand on the gospel for several more verses. Continuing in verse 19, he says, For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. When we try to earn our salvation by keeping the law, when we try to make ourselves feel superior to others by obeying a moral code, we will only be condemned, we will only be revealed as hypocrites. Because none of us, no one can keep all of God's laws and commands. We will all fall short of meeting our own and God's moral standard. So what is the solution? For Paul, he says, I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements. Paul died to the law. Paul died to legalism. Does that mean he can now go and live however he wants and Chase after his own pleasure and his own desires? No. Right? He said he, he died to the law. He stopped trying to keep all his requirements so that he might live for God. Paul died to the law so that he might live for God. And how does he die to the law? He tells them in verse 20 by, by trusting and identifying with Jesus. He says in verse 20, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The gospel is the message that we can, that when we try to meet God's moral standard in our own power, we will fail. We're all sinners, and therefore we will all be condemned. Our relationship with and our standing before God will be ruined. And our only hope of having that fellowship with God restored and of being made right with God is if we die to the law and trust in Jesus instead. So that our old self is crucified with Christ. That's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. So that when God looks at us to judge whether we are righteous or not, and therefore deserving of eternal life or not. God doesn't see our lives. He doesn't see all the sin we've committed. Rather, he sees the sinless life of Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross. Our old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And God looks at us and sees the life of Christ and that righteousness, not our old sin and guilt. Because God sees the life of Jesus, then there's nothing we can... Jesus has done for us on the cross. It's all grace. It's all a gift. 
That the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. So if you're here today, and you've lived your life right, trying, to, trying to earn God's favor through your own moral living, if you've been trying to earn your way to heaven by, by being good, by keeping some law or moral code, I'd simply ask, like, how good is good enough? I'm here to tell you, you can't be good enough. You will fall short. We are all sinners. We're all hypocrites. None of us can be good enough on our own. We need Jesus. So if you're here and you've never turned to Jesus, you've never trusted in Jesus and His sinless life as your only hope of salvation, I just urge you to do that today. Stop trusting in your own good works and your own best efforts. Stop trusting in any moral code. But trust in Jesus. For those of us who are here who have trusted in Jesus, who have believed the gospel, the one I hope we see in this passage, like I said at the beginning, is that it's how the gospel and how Jesus subverts our self-righteous hypocrisy. If we're going to see how the gospel does that, and the first thing we need to see is that we are all prone to hypocrisy. Right? It's certainly not the same hypocrisy as Peter's. Right? We probably all almost exclusively eat with Gentiles and don't think anything of it. Right? Like, but we're all, we're all here. We have all have different areas of our lives where we are hypocrites. Peter's sin ultimately was keeping at arm's length and, and treating as inferior and looking down on those who didn't meet his moral standard. Even though with his mouth he affirmed the gospel, he wasn't living that out. Peter was being legalistic. And I would submit to you that, that legalism is, is alive and well in the church, and it's alive and well in each one of our own individual lives. Legalism reared its head any time that we feel that someone is either more or less of a Christian because that's something they either do or they don't do. Legalism is looking to anything other than Jesus to be right with God or, or to feel superior to others. And we do this in all kinds of ways. We feel either guilt or pride over how much we read the Bible. We feel guilt or pride over how much we pray or how much we memorize Scripture. It's the barometer we use for how holy someone is. We're embracing legalism when we either look down on or overly praise someone for, for who they vote for or for how they spend their money or for how they spend their time. Legalism is live and well. I shared this before, but when we lived in Louisville, I was in seminary, I had, I had at one point signed three different contracts that forbade drinking alcohol. There was this cultural stigma in that area that looked down on anyone who, who called themselves a Christian and chose to drink alcohol. Now look, there, there are plenty of good reasons for a Christian to choose not to drink. But when it becomes a test of the quality of your Christian life, that's legalism. Tim Keller sums it up this way. He says, The most subtle way to lapse into Peter's sin is simply to take our own preferences too seriously and endow them with moral significance, and endow with moral significance what is only cultural. 
for example. It is very hard for Christians from churches with emotional expressiveness and modern music not to feel superior to churches with emotional reserve and classical music and vice versa. We cannot see that we are just different. We believe that our style and customs are spiritually better. This leads to all sorts of divisions in the body of Christ. We're all prone for not careful to falling into hypocrisy like Peter, to falling into legalism. So I just encourage you to ask yourself, are there areas in my life where I feel spiritually superior to others who call themselves Christian because of something that I do or something that I don't do? Do I feel like I'm a higher tier of Christian because I do X or Y or Z or I don't do X or Y or Z? Are there areas where I'm applying an external moral code onto others? We must, we must always be on guard applying by our thoughts or our words or our actions that the gospel is Jesus plus anything. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Our righteousness with God depends on, on Christ alone. We must always be on guard against hypocrisy in our own lives. And when we see hypocrisy and legalism show up either in our own life or in the lives of others, we would do well to have our response reflect Paul's response. Right? Remember, Paul's response was, was not to criticize the sin behavior directly, but to get to the attitude that underlied that sin. And Paul's response was to seek to apply the gospel to each and every situation of his life. And that should be our response as well. To how do we apply and live out the gospel in every area of our lives? We have to seek to, to live lives where we straight walk the gospel. Where we help others see areas where their lives don't fall into line with the gospel. We must see how, how Jesus and his gospel subvert all the reasons we typically have for hypocrisy and legalism. We saw earlier how, how Peter's reason for hypocrisy was a fear of man. But Paul brought the gospel to bear on that reasoning by reminding Peter that, that what God thinks about him is infinitely more important than what any other man thinks about him. And he reminded Peter that God's opinion of him is already sealed because God's view of Peter is based on the work of Jesus and not on anything Peter himself does or doesn't do. Jean-Jacques Rousseau's hypocrisy was motivated by selfishness wanting to live a life of his own pleasure, free of the burden of children. But the gospel tells us that our own sinful desires and our own selfishness don't, long, don't no longer matter, because it is no longer we who live, but, but Christ who lives in us. We're no longer called to live for ourselves, but to live for God. And so the, the gospel subverts selfishness. Sometimes our hypocrisy comes when, when we hold ourselves to a, a moral standard that we think we need to keep to please God. 
And so we, we try really hard to keep our own standard. We try to earn God's favor. We try to earn our way into heaven, but we always fail. We can never be good enough to earn God's favor on our own. But the gospel subverts that by assuring us that our favor with God, our hope of eternal life, does not depend on our own obedience, which will always fail, but on the perfect, unfailing obedience of Jesus in our place. Sometimes our hypocrisy is it's driven by pride. We create artificial standard of righteousness so that we can be perceived as holier or better than those who don't reach our artificial standard of righteousness. That the Pharisees were so good at in the New Testament. But the gospel that the but the gospel says that artificial standards of righteousness are, are meaningless. Because the gospel says that there are only two categories of righteousness. The right, unrighteous and those who have been made righteous by trusting in Jesus and nothing else. Right? There is no category of righteousness for those who have been made righteous by Jesus, but then are extra righteous because of going above and beyond to meet some artificial standard. No matter what drives our hypocrisy, what drives our sin, that the gospel cuts the legs off from underneath all those reasons. Our job is to, to straight walk the gospel, to apply the gospel to every area of our lives. Our job is to make sure we are following the truth of the gospel message. Or if Paul puts in a verse 21, our job is to make sure that we are not treating the law of God as meaningless says in verse 21, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law can make us right with God, then there would no, there was no need for Christ to die. Whenever legalism seeps into our lives, we're treating the grace of God as meaningless. God, by His grace, sent His Son to live the perfect life we couldn't live and die on the cross in our place so that we could be made right with God and declared righteous. And every time we, we try to add anything to the work of Jesus and the gospel, we're treating that grace as meaningless. If keeping the law can make us right with God, there was no need for Christ to die. Let us not treat God's grace as meaningless. Every year, Merriam-Webster Dictionary crowns a, a word of the year. And their word of the year for 2023 was the word authentic. And the reason why they chose that word, they say, is that authentic saw a, a substantial increase in searches in 2023, driven by stories and conversations about AI, celebrity culture, identity, and social media. In a world where it's increasingly easy to be inauthentic, the world finds itself more and more craving true authenticity. In a world where it's easy to pass off the work of chat GPT as your own. In a world where it's easy to share only a highly curated, heavily filtered version of your life on social media, the world craves authenticity. And the good news that the gospel allows and equips us to live truly authentic lives. We don't need to hide our sin. 
We don't need to put on a mask and, and pretend like we have it all put together and all figured out. We don't need to be ashamed of or hide our junk. We can be honest with our struggles and our sins because it is no longer we who live. That old self will put to death on the cross with Jesus. But what matters now is not our old self, but that Christ lives in us. Yes, our old sin- sinful self still clings to us for now. And our old self will not be fully dealt with until either we die or Jesus returns. But when that old sinful self reared its ugly head, and we do fall into sin, we don't need to hide it. We don't need to be ashamed of it. Because we know that Jesus has already done all that is required to deal with our sin and make us right with God. And so if you take nothing from this sermon, my hope is that it is not. It is not go and be hypocrites no more. Instead, if you just take one thing from today's sermon, let it be this. Because of Jesus, because of the gospel, we no longer have any reason for hypocrisy. The gospel and Jesus subvert and cut the legs out from all our reasons that we might have for being hypocrites. By remembering the gospel, remembering what Jesus did for us, every reason we had for hypocrisy is subverted. And we are free to live authentic, God-honoring lives where we own our shortcomings, where we own our failures, where we confess our sins. We can, we can repent. We can die to the law. We can die to legalism so that, we, so that we might live for God. Let us be people who are walking out and applying the gospel to all our lives and living for God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in sending Jesus to live among us, to die for us on the cross. Father, we thank you that by believing and trusting in Jesus, our old sinful selves have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. We thank you that because of Jesus, you look at those of us who have trusted in Jesus, and you see the perfect, sinless, righteous life of Christ and not our old sinful selves. So, Father, as we go out from here, as we seek to live our lives, would our desire be to straight walk the gospel? Would our desire be to, to bring every area of our lives in line with the gospel and to show through our thoughts, through our actions, that your grace is not meaningless? That because of Jesus and Jesus alone, we have eternal hope. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of logistics for this morning. So during the the Sunday school hour, the uh, children Christmas program will be practicing in here. And so I'm going to lead a a question and answer conversation about the sermon over in the library. We'll close the door. It might be a little bit loud as a kid, but we'll do our best answer any questions and talk through the sermon if you're interested in being part of that. I'd love to have you come and talk about the sermon. And then 
Sunday school will wrap up at 10.30 or at 11.30. And shortly after 11.30, we will gather back in here for our congregational meeting. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. We're glad that you are here to worship God. And as you go from here, would you go living lives that, that seek to, to bring the gospel to bear on every area of your life? You are dismissed.